Hey everyone, this is episode eight of Artist Soapbox. Hello, this is your host, Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I'm speaking with Marshall Botvinnik, dramaturg, playwright, and theater scholar. As is the case with every interview I've done, there are always conversations that I yearn to continue and questions I didn't have time to ask, and that was certainly the case with my time with Marshall. I aim to keep each episode of Artist Soapbox around 40 to 50 minutes, which is certainly plenty of time to cover a range of topics, but there are so many interesting tidbits that always fall by the wayside or we're just beginning to explore when time is up. For example, in this episode, we weren't able to discuss Marshall's current project at Burning Coal Theatre Company, where he is working as a dramaturg on a new adaptation of a script titled Peter Pan and Wendy. After our recording, he described this work as incredibly interesting and fulfilling, and I would have loved to have heard more about that. You can see Peter Pan and Wendy at Burning Coal running November 30th through December 17th. And we only scratched the surface of a potentially rich conversation about the opportunities that we have as artists to respond to our current political reality at the local and national level. I'm eager to circle back to these topics and many more with Marshall and other guests. In the meantime, I'll include links in the show notes and encourage you to dive into those. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. Marshall Botvinnik is a lecturer in the Department of Theater at UNC Wilmington and an adjunct assistant professor at Elon University. He holds an MFA in Dramaturgy from the ART Institute for Advanced Theater Training at Harvard University and a BA in Theater Studies from Duke University. He has worked with the American Repertory Theater, Playmakers Repertory Company, Man Bites Dog Theater, Little Green Pig Theatrical Concern, and Burning Coal Theater Company. In addition to his work as a dramaturg, Marshall is also a playwright whose work has been developed at South Carolina Repertory Company and the Mid-America Theater Conference. He is the author of the book Johnson, Belpone, and the editor of the essay collection Staging Ben, a collection of essays on the theatricality of Johnson's plays. In this episode, we'll explore that mysterious word, dramaturg, and the multitudes it contains, online education, student and audience engagement, and theater making in the season of Trump. Hello, Marshall. Good morning, morning. Tamara. How are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing great, and I'm so excited that you're here. First of all, I would like to talk about the dramaturg, this mythical creature. I'm gonna generalize and say that most people don't know what that means, and even most theater makers don't quite understand what a dramaturg does, it's sort of, I think people think of this as some exotic and mysterious spice that you add to a play or a production that makes it better, but no one quite understands the chemical reactions. So I went online where I get all of my answers and I looked up the role of the dramaturg. I went to the LMDA site which is the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas. It's a volunteer membership organization. And they have on their website something that says the role of the dramaturg. And I wanted to read a couple of sentences from that paragraph. Over the past three decades, the role of the dramaturg and literary manager has expanded in the United States and Canada alongside the increasing importance of contemporary playwriting. 
working in theaters and playwrights organizations, in colleges and universities, and on a project-by-project -project basis, dramaturgs contextualize the world of a play, establish connections among the text, actors, and audience, offer opportunities for playwrights, generate projects and programs, and create conversations about plays in their communities. And then on another page on that same website, there's a list of, I'm gonna say maybe 30 different tasks that a dramaturg could, um, could do in various categories such as research, development, new plays, production dramaturgy, arts and education, and advocacy. So it does not surprise me that it's easy to lose some of the central threads of what this work is because it seems to encompass so many different possibilities. Would you give us, would you orient us to this sure. word, please? <laughs> um, so I like to think of the dramaturg as functioning as a theater's resident scholar, uh, but scholarship not for the sake of scholarship as exists in academia, uh, but scholarship for the sake of practice. Uh, so going back to the text that you read from LMDA, um, the dramaturg really serves as a point of entry or a vehicle to help both artists and audiences enter the text. Uh, so I think kind of the most important word uh, connected to the function of a dramaturg is context, uh, mm -hmm. and that the dramaturg really exists to provide the necessary context to understand what is happening within the text. So this could be anything from, say you're dealing with uh, a Shakespearean text or some other kind of text from that period, understanding the relevant vocabulary that one would need to be able to speak the text uh, clearly and intelligibly, but also understanding the relevant historical context. Uh, perhaps even understanding relevant production context and sort of what's the overarching production history of this play in performance. Mm -hmm. So that when artists sit down that first day for that table read, they are also being greeted with uh, a packet of information that's been prepared by the dramaturg to, uh, to help them understand uh, what it is that's going on in the text. Similarly, dramaturgs kind of serve the same sort of function for audience members, whether that is through program notes, whether that's through lobby displays, whether that's through pre-show lectures, post-show talkbacks. Um, all of these basic functions that are designed for uh, orientation. That a dramaturg in many ways can be a very useful compass for mm -hmm. anyone who wants to engage with this text or this performance. Uh, beyond that, um, the other kind of major function that a dramaturg will serve, especially in uh, the American theater, um, is as uh, a sounding board, uh, even I would go so far as to say uh, an editor for playwrights working on new plays, mm -hmm. uh, and that a dramaturg's voice in the new play development process can be exceptionally useful uh, for playwrights who are still trying to figure out, okay, what's working in this text, what's not working, uh, what are my overarching aims, what I'm trying to do with this play, uh, which sometimes 
you'd think in many ways it'd be the first thing that a player would think about, but sometimes it takes a dramaturg really sitting down and asking the right question at the right time that gives the playwright the focus that mm -hmm. he or she needs to really figure out what their intentions are or to figure out why it is that they haven't quite achieved what it is that they think they've set out mm. uh, to achieve. Um, and so I think really good dramaturgs uh, always exist uh, in a state of service uh, and exist to figure out what it is that a director, a playwright, actors, the designers are trying to accomplish and what kinds of questions, what kinds of information, uh, and what kinds of feedback and notes do they need that will take them to the place it is that they have said already that hmm. they sort of want to, to be going to. Hmm. Um, so that, that's kind of how I see the, the function of a dramaturg. But, but you're right, um, it, it is a much more uh, nebulous and undefined position in the theater relative to a costume designer. It's pretty clear what a costume designer's job is. It's to get the actors in the appropriate costumes for the play. Um, but the fact that a dramaturg uh, can be doing so many different kinds of things uh, oftentimes, I think, creates situations in which they aren't always used in the most useful way. Um, uh, and they're full uh, potential to uh, contribute to the process isn't always harnessed because there's so much on that list that people are, I don't really know like what item off the menu to, mm -hmm. to order here in terms of dramaturgical support. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes I find, even as a dramaturg, that my first task is simply explaining what it is that I have to offer mm -hmm. uh, and then from there, uh, directors or playwrights or designers or even actors uh, can start to approach me um, uh, and get what it is that they need from me to do their work. Hmm. Can you offer some examples of uh, productions that you've worked with as a dramaturg and how that how that went down? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say that my dramaturgical experience is, I would say about one third, one third, and one third. Uh, about a third of the plays that I work on are either uh, new plays or at least new adaptations of text, so things that have never uh, been seen before, uh, in which case my primary focus on those kinds of projects is really working with the playwright to make sure that uh, from the standpoint of structure, from the standpoint of character development, from the standpoint of narrative clarity, uh, that they're accomplishing the things that they want to accomplish to give the audience the intellectual or emotional experience that uh, they're going for. Uh, I would say about a third of my projects tend to be um, very research heavy for uh, contemporary or somewhat recent plays that are still incredibly dense in terms of their uh, historical material, their intellectual content. Uh, so when I work with Burning Coal Theater, I've done a lot of work uh, with the plays of David Edgar, uh, whose work is uh, 
incredibly cerebral um, and requires a great deal of familiarity with the historical context in which the characters are existing. Or I've worked on a production of Lucy Preble's play, Enron. Uh, mm -hmm. And to do that play, you really need to understand the economics of what it was that uh, Enron and their CEO, uh, Ken Lay, were, were trying to do in the early 2000s uh, and why that uh, was both illegal and ultimately caused their company to go under. Um, so that's uh, kind of a third of the work that I do. And then I would say about a third of the productions that I'm involved in tend to be uh, classical plays, mm -hmm. uh, most notably uh, Shakespearean texts. Uh, I've worked on productions of Julius Caesar, productions of As You Like It. Um, and there, there's some historical context, but I would say more than anything, it is just helping the actor and the directors unpack the language mm -hmm. uh, and just being another voice in that room to help people uh, understand what it is that's being said in any given moment. Because if uh, the actors and the director don't understand, then ultimately certainly the audience won't understand. Uh, and in those productions as well, and it's some of the most fulfilling work that I find as a dramaturg, uh, I also serve uh, in an editorial capacity mm. uh, because it's really difficult, if not impossible, to do Shakespeare uncut. Right. Uh, and so sometimes the directors will do the cut themselves. Uh, sometimes it will be a joint effort between director and dramaturg, and sometimes the director will outsource that to the dramaturg and say, hey, bring me a cut of this text. Uh, these are kind of my primary thematic concerns. These are the characters that I'm most interested in. This is the running time that I want to come in at. Uh, what do you think? can go. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so that's always really exciting because I feel like uh, as a dramaturg I have a great deal of artistic agency because I really am at that point actively shaping the performance text. Uh, and the words, even though I'm not a playwright, those words come from Shakespeare, but the words that the audience will ultimately hear and see performed on the stage are at least uh, curated mm -hmm. uh, by me mm -hmm. as, as a dramaturg. Um, so I'd say those are kind of the three sort of different sorts of projects that uh, I work on. How do you learn how to do this? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I took on about $50,000 worth of student debt, <laughs> uh, uh, and that's how I learned how to do it. Um, I would say that dramaturgs in, America, in the American theater really come up one of two ways. Uh, they either come up through the university system uh, and through the MFA pipeline. Uh, and there aren't that many MFA programs in dramaturgy in the country. Um, to my knowledge, there is uh, the program uh, at ART, which is now on uh, short-term hiatus. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the program at Yale. There's the program at Columbia. There's a program at UMass at Amherst. Uh, and there's a program at uh, the University of Iowa. I think those are the only five MFAs. Um, there are some PhD programs that have a pretty heavy dramaturgical slant to them. Um, so uh, that's one way, is to kind of come up through the graduate school pipeline. Uh, the other way is to really come up uh, almost like an apprenticeship directly through uh, the regional theater uh, system. Oftentimes, uh, people begin as uh, interns in the literary management office, uh, and then from there kind of move up into associate positions, mm -hmm. and then ultimately up to uh, literary manager positions. Um, so either through an academic context or kind of through more uh, professional on-the-job kind of apprenticeship 
uh, type programs would be sort of the two ways I think that most uh, most dramaturgs acquire the skill set that they need to to be able to do their jobs effectively. And when you are sitting down to do this work, are there a series of best practices for approaching the text? Like when you went to ART, what did you study? You yeah. Do you see what I'm asking? Yeah, no, I, I, I do. Um, uh, let me, I guess, start by telling you sort of what were the courses that, yeah. that we took. Um, so the first course that we take at the ART, uh, and the ART program starts actually in the summer. Uh, and the summer semester, the central course is a course called uh, Dramaturgical Casebook in which we are each given uh, a play. Uh, I was given the Oristaya. Uh, and we are... Start light. <laughs> yeah, start light. Just take a whole trilogy. Um, and we are asked sort of over the course of six weeks to compile a casebook. Uh, and each week we're doing a different aspect of the casebook. So one week we'd be presenting on the production history surrounding the text. One week we would be presenting on uh, the critical history surrounding the text and looking at what various scholars and literary critics have written. Uh, one week we would, if we're working with a play in translation, as I was, we would be looking just specifically at all the translations that mm -hmm. exist uh, to make a recommendation about what might be the uh, ideal, uh, the ideal translation uh, in performance. One week we're looking just at the original historical context of the play and how the play might be engaging uh, with its own time, uh, and ultimately that leads to sort of this giant tome of research mm -hmm. uh, that we then publicly present, but if it were kind of in the rehearsal room, could then sort of serve as a template for the work of the directors, the actors, and the designers when they go to approach this text. Uh, so that's sort of where we started um, mm -hmm. in the research mode. Uh, and then from there, we took a variety of courses uh, over the next two years in theater history. Uh, we also took courses in translation, courses in adaptation. Uh, throughout the entirety of the two years, we were doing coursework uh, in new play development and new play evaluation. So the graduate program at the ART essentially kind of becomes the de facto literary office uh, for the company as well. So mm -hmm. we were writing all of the script reports for submissions that were coming in from playwrights agents. Uh, so. I think those are kind of the bulk of our coursework. Uh, oh, and then uh, writing for publication, because mm -hmm. dramaturgs, of course, do a great deal of writing, whether that's generating anything from student study guide packets, uh, which is what I've, I've done uh, previously at Playmakers Repertory Company, whether that's generating uh, program notes. Uh, some theaters even have kind of publications and magazines that they send out to subscribers. Uh, so that would kind of be the totality mm -hmm. of um, uh, the totality of our training. It's very clear to me the value that this role would play in not only new play development but also as part of the production to add a depth of understanding for everyone involved and because it allows the other folks to focus more finely on the responsibilities of their job. So I think often when you don't have a dramaturg, a lot of those responsibilities will go to the director, will go to the playwright, will go to a marketing person. And I think that that can lead to a more superficial experience for everyone. So I think I understand the value of, of this position. 
Have you had to advocate for the value yourself? Personally, no, I have not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think uh, dramaturgs 30, 40 years ago in this country were in a very different situation than dramaturgs are today in 2017 uh, when the position uh, was sort of just starting the notion of a dramaturg as being a viable contributor to uh, the American theater uh, was starting to emerge. Um, I think dramaturgs had to do a lot of that legwork. I think mm. at this point that foundational work has been done. Uh, so the not-for-profit professional regional theater movement really starts to emerge in this country in the late 1940s and 1950s. And I think the addition of the dramaturg to the American theater is kind of a delayed consequence of the emergence of the professional regional theater. Mm -hmm. uh, but once those theaters really started to take off in the 60s and the 70s, uh, and as new play development started to become less concentrated uh, in New York City uh, and more decentralized, uh, dramaturgs became a much more common figure uh, mm -hmm. uh, to have around companies. I think lots of companies that don't do new play development uh, don't necessarily have the need for a full-time dramaturg on staff. Uh, and even within this community, uh, Playmaker's Repertory Company is, uh, is the only company uh, mm -hmm. that has uh, that has full-time dramaturgs uh, on staff. Uh, all other dramaturgs are contracted out project mm -hmm. by project. Uh, and since I generally tend to be contracted out project by project, I don't have to uh, prove or assert my value uh, because I'm the one who has been approached in, right. in the first place uh, because uh, a director has recognized uh, the need uh, for a dramaturg on this specific project, either generally because it will be a new script or because it's uh, ex exceptionally research heavy. Mm -hmm. You are a playwright as well. I am, yes. Have you found that your training um, in, in dramaturgy has affected the way you approach your own writing? Immensely, uh, immensely. Uh, one of the courses uh, that we take uh, in graduate school, actually one of the first courses that we take, uh, is a course in dramatic structure. Uh, and we, over the semester, look at various structural models uh, from the kind of very traditional climactic Freitag's mm -hmm. pyramid model to daisy chains to uh, the episodic structure of epic theater uh, to circular structure. Uh, and I think a familiarity with how stories uh, are structured or can be structured for the stage uh, has helped my playwriting tremendously uh, because I can really see, I, I think, um, with a great deal of clarity how the events need to be sequenced to uh, both make logical sense mm -hmm. um, uh, and maintain plausibility, at least when I'm working within uh, a realistic story, uh, and also need to be sequenced to maximize their emotional impact uh, mm -hmm. on the audience. Uh, so. I would say that, um, yeah, that uh, the thinking about dramatic structure that is uh, inherent in any dramaturg's training, I think, makes, uh, at least gives them the potential uh, to uh, be effective as players. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the teaching that you do, because I know that's a big part of your 
your life as well. Marshall, would you tell us a little bit about the students that you have taught and currently teach? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I've had the joy of teaching such a wide variety of students from uh, an exceptional amount of uh, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, um, ages, uh, educational backgrounds. So uh, the ART Institute, which is affiliated with Harvard, uh, we are uh, as dramaturgs teaching fellows. Uh, so I had the opportunity to teach and work with Harvard undergraduates. Uh, I've been on faculty at Duke. Um, so I've taught students enrolled at two uh, elite academic institutions. But I've also, in my first job out of graduate school, full-time job out of graduate school, was teaching uh, in an Associates Fine Arts program uh, at Forsyth Tech Community College in Winston-Salem. Uh, and in terms of community college, I can have students as young as 16, as old as 65. I've had students who were brighter and doing more advanced work than I had doing in my classrooms at Duke and Harvard, and I had students who were working at a fifth grade level, all in the same classroom. Currently, uh, I'm on faculty at two institutions. Uh, I am a part-time faculty member at Elon University, which has a BFA program, which culturally is very different than uh, your general BA programs because it's conservatory focused. It assumes that ultimately these graduates will be going out to work professionally uh, and they are getting trained to get on the national tour circuit. They're getting trained to be able to go to Broadway uh, and, and work uh, and many, many of them do. Uh, and then finally, uh, in my current full-time position at UNC Wilmington, I teach uh, primarily students enrolled in an online accelerated nursing program taking courses in introduction to theater. So I've seen uh, kind of everyone and anyone that you could think of who at least has progressed to the point that they are pursuing some form of post-secondary education uh, in the United States. Uh, and it's, it's, it's very illuminating um, to, to encounter that uh, range of diversity and range of abilities within a classroom. How might you approach those populations differently, the BFA students versus the online nursing Sure. Students. So with my online nursing students, I have to start with the presumption that these students have no prior exposure to theater. Uh, and that's probably the case with about 50% of them, that they've never read a play, uh, they've never stepped foot in the theater and seen a play. Uh, and so I have to assume that any piece of vocabulary that I use has to be defined, uh, that uh, I can't start with the assumption that if I say something that they will immediately have a frame of reference for it because in many cases they won't. Uh, when I'm teaching uh, at Elon and I'm teaching 300 level theater history and theater literature courses to students who are studying this intensively and who plan to do this for a living, I can presume that we share a, a fair amount of common vocabulary before I start. So we can drill much, much deeper um, than I think I probably can with uh, my students uh, who, who aren't majors, who are just taking this to kind of gain a greater appreciation or familiarity with the art form. How does the online course work? Do you ever see these folks face to face or come together as a group? I don't. Uh, so the model that I use is called uh, an asynchronous online course, which means the students can access the material at a time of their choosing. So they would log into the course uh, and they would see the folder for the current week. Let's say uh, I'm working on directing this week and they would click on the folder. What they'd encounter would be an overview 
then they'd encounter some course objectives, then they'd encounter about a 15-minute lecture from me on the topic of directing. Mm -hmm. uh, that would also accompany some reading that they're doing in their textbook. And then there'd be some secondary materials, um, oftentimes YouTube clips, interviews, uh, sometimes some links to articles, and then they'd be asked to complete uh, various uh, tasks or activities. So they'd have uh, a quiz that's kind of a, a, a knowledge and comprehension measure. They would have a discussion forum. That's an opportunity for them to take what we've learned and have a conversation with me and have a conversation with their classmates. Uh, and then they would have some sort of larger assignment that would either be creative or analytical in nature, kind of depending on uh, the week. And I like to kind of alternate between what's asking them to use a certain amount of reasoning and analytical, more classic academic tasks uh, and uh, the creative side of their brain and more kind of classic artistic tasks. Um, so that, that's kind of how the course is structured. So for this population that um, of students who are not going to go on to become professional uh, actors or theater makers, in addition to imparting information about what theater is and what that might encompass. Do you have other goals as a teacher for these, for these students? I do. So I, I certainly see my function when I'm teaching Introduction to Theater courses as helping to build an audience base for this art form that we love in this country. Uh, and I feel like I've done my job well if 20% of the students who take my class leave my class thinking, you know what, one to two Saturdays or Sundays in the next year, I'm going to go and see a play or a musical. I'm going to go to the theater. Um, so I, I certainly want to uh, engender uh, an appreciation of the art form that will ultimately uh, foster consumption. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm also aware that um, the vast majority, if not uh, the entirety of my students, and myself included, uh, our primary medium uh, for entertainment is not theater. Uh, that we primarily consume uh, entertainment through uh, film uh, and, and cinema, whether that's television, movies, uh, online video. Uh, and so I want to also ensure that my students have sort of this larger media literacy mm -hmm. uh, and that the conversations that we have about theater and analyzing theatrical performances and theatrical text, that those skills can also translate to uh, other forms of artistic media and artistic storytelling that they might encounter. So that they're understanding how these elements of storytelling are being manipulated ultimately to impact them. Mm -hmm. uh, so they could then in turn dissect anything from an advertisement to uh, a two and a half hour movie. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm also aware as I teach that I can't be solely focused on theater, but that theater has to be uh, a means of facilitating a much larger conversation about how do we analyze and how do we consume uh, any form of media that involves storytelling. I'm fascinated by this idea of teaching theater online because it feels like such a live mm -hmm. experience, you know, uh, 
how do you square, so part of, it sounds like part of the way that you're squaring that is by um, broadening, broadening the picture to include the consumption of other types of entertainment. Um, but how do you square that, the idea that theater is primarily an alive event that we experience in community with this individual experience of an online uh, user. Absolutely. Uh, it is definitely uh, an inherent contradiction built into the course. Uh, that the notion of teaching theater online is contradictory in a way that teaching history or teaching physics online is not. Uh, and one of my uh, greatest kind of disappointments with the course when I teach my nurses is they're scattered all across the state of North Carolina. They are not concentrated in Wilmington. Uh, so there is not a uh, a single live performance that I can assign them to see that all will see. Uh, so unfortunately, when it comes time for them to write production reviews and to expose them to theater and performance, I have to do it through recorded versions of productions. That said, I do try to accentuate the social appeal by requesting that they watch the performance with someone else, hmm. uh, whether it's a uh, hmm a friend, uh, a partner, uh, some other kind of family member. So it's not just something that they are experiencing in a vacuum. Of mm -hmm. course, I have no way of verifying how many of my students do do that, how many of them don't do that. Um, but uh, that's one way that I at least try to uh, simulate or come up with some sort of approximation of the social uh, appeal or communal aspect of, uh, of live theater. Um, but uh, you're right that uh, a digital learning community is almost inherently less communal mm -hmm. than uh, a learning community that all shares uh, the same physical space. You and I spoke a little bit uh, earlier today about the relationship between artists and audience. And often my experience as an artist is that this relationship or conversation feels very one-sided. So as an artist, I produce content that is then consumed by the audience, but I don't get much back from the audience other than the fact that they might buy a ticket to come see the next thing, or they might applaud, or they you know occasionally might write a Facebook post or something like that. But it feels almost like a one-way street where I just put things out, um, but it's not reflected back to me the value that uh, an audience member might see or what engages them, why they come back. So I'm really curious because it feels like you are in dialogue with audience members who are also students. So what are you hearing from folks about how they engage with theater, or what might interest them or cause them to become more engaged? So I will actually flip the question because the first assignment I ask my students to write is a paper called Why Not Theater, mm. in which I ask them to explore three reasons that uh, they think, the three primary reasons that Americans, uh, and for many of them themselves, choose not to attend the theater. Uh, that what are the, what are the barriers of entry or what mm. are the causes of disengagement? Uh, and then I ask them uh, within that to then brainstorm possible uh, solutions to, to that. Um, and what I find um, is that uh, 
two of the barriers you would expect uh, to see pretty easily, which are uh, money and time, uh, which are the barriers to, to most forms of consumption. Uh, money strikes me as more easy to fix than time. I don't know how you, you actually physically make more time for people. Um, many of my nurses uh, are parents. Uh, they're parents to younger children, so they are very much feeling the, uh, the scarcity of time, and they talk often about childcare and the lack of childcare as being a major barrier to, to attending the theater. Um, but beyond those, um, uh, beyond the ones that you might expect, uh, I'm often intrigued by the fears that they have. Hmm. Um, so there are three fears that seem to come up every semester. Uh, one is uh, in this country where uh, mass shootings are essentially an inevitability. Uh, I have students who are genuinely scared to be in crowded spaces mm -hmm. uh, and who are kept away from the theater simply because they're concerned about their own security and personal safety. Mm -hmm. um, and they often cite the movie shooting at Aurora uh, and now in the aftermath of the Las Vegas concert mm -hmm. shooting um, that that that's coming up as well. Um, but beyond the fears about safety, there are also sort of fears of judgment uh, and standing out um, that uh, theater is for people who belong to a culture that's different than the culture that they identify with. Mm. Uh, and the sort of two, uh, the two areas where that comes up are class, uh, this assumption that people attend, the th that theater is a black tie affair. Right. Because I think of, yeah, um, uh, that the culture of the American theater is synonymous with the culture uh, at opening night of Metropolitan Opera. Hmm. I think because of how, in a lot of ways, going to the theater is depicted in the entertainment that we do consume. Hmm. Uh, and that theater is sort of hoity-toity, that theater is for the upper crust, uh, and that there fundamentally is not a place for me as like a working class person, um, that I don't have the wardrobe for this. Hmm. Um, uh, and. Uh, I, I don't want to stand out and, and feel judged for belonging to a class that's different than this kind of elite mm -hmm. socioeconomic class of theater patrons. Uh, the other fear of judgment uh, is on the political end of the spectrum uh, that many of the students I teach, um, I can't always tell what my students' politics are, but uh, sometimes it, it's quite clear through their posts what their politics are. Uh, and they're quite explicit that they stay away from the theater because they feel like they're going to be judged for their political beliefs. Mm. Uh, and that they have this sense that if they're going to the theater, uh, it's not for a conversation, but that they are going uh, and they're going to find themselves under uh, attack. and and. They don't want that. Right. Uh, so those are some of the things that I'm hearing from my students in that first paper that comes up in the first week about oh, why, why aren't why aren't people going? Why why aren't you going? What would what would get you there? Um, and and what could what could theaters do um, mm -hmm. to to make this work? Mm -hmm. I'd like to pivot a little bit on the 
point of politics that you brought up just now because I wanted to talk about one of the blog posts that you wrote uh, for HowlRound. You've written multiple blog posts and essays for HowlRound and other um, publications. And one of the things that I respect about you is your willingness to uh, write as a political artist um, and also as a citizen mm -hmm. of, of the world. But the, the blog post in particular that I wanted to bring up today was posted on April 3rd, 2016 on HowlRound, which was, I guess, a year and a half ago. Hard to believe. believe. <laughs> I know. I know. And the title of that post was Making Theater in the Season of Trump. I'm going to read a paragraph that you wrote towards the end of the article because I think it's a nice summary of, of some of the points of the article, just to give our listeners some context. And that is this. Trump's campaign represents something undeniably awful for the nation, but it also represents an opportunity. This opportunity exists for theaters as well. You, we need to view Trump's troubling rise as a call to action, as a sign that things should be done differently. This will mean rethinking what our stories are about, who we tell them to, and how we develop them. And one of the suggestions that you included in this blog post was engaging audience members who might not have the political viewpoints that most of our audiences have. And then you spoke about that uh, as something that is a concern of your students. So this was written before Trump was elected, and here we are. What are your thoughts now as you look back at that post that you wrote and the suggestions that you made? Uh I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, as as most people uh, do, um, as this season has become, in fact, a four-year term, which, uh, to be frank, at the time that I wrote the article, you know, while I was uh, afraid that Trump might win, uh, I ultimately believed that he would not, uh, that uh, the political conditions would make it impossible for him to win. Uh, and to a certain extent, uh, as I think about what I propose, I think there is a magnanimity or a benevolence that accompanies a sort of assuredness that I'm going to be on the side hmm. that will win. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, uh, I wasn't right. uh, on the side that won. Um, and so there is this question of, well, does that same sort of uh, graciousness and, and outreach uh, accompany defeat that uh, accompanied what I presumed was going to be uh, a political victory? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my answer is yes. Uh, that uh, it, it should, that, that same graciousness uh, and that same sense of open doors and the need to foster a conversation uh, amongst our community, amongst the citizens of uh, this country, uh, is just as vital, if not more vital, uh, than it was in, in April of 2016. That being said, what does that look like. Uh, and in this way, I don't think my position has changed uh, greatly. Uh, that ultimately, when I wrote that article, 
I did not think of that article as being a political article or a politics-focused article. I think of that article as being a civics-focused mm -hmm. article. Uh, and uh, President Obama said recently, um, as he's starting to plan kind of his post-presidency, that, and I agree with him, that the problems that we are facing and the toxicity of our politics are actually a symptom of a much uh, deeper problem and a much deeper illness within our kind of larger civil society. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I was interested in, in then uh, and what I'm still interested in now is how do we form a functioning and healthy civil society and what role can our art, can our theater play in the formation of a society that really at this moment in time does seem to be uh, fraying at the seams. I mean, it feels as if we are very fractured uh, and the impulse that all of us have is to retreat to our silos. Mm -hmm. I think certainly social media has uh, exacerbated or intensified this tendency or natural inclination that we have, all of us, towards tribalism uh, and comfortable, uh, we feel most comfortable uh, amongst those who are like us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that uh, Trump won in large part because of tribalism. Mm -hmm. and. I don't think that the antidote to that is better tribalism on our part. Mm. Um, I don't think the solution is to say, well, they won in 2016 because their tribe screamed louder than our tribe. So if we scream louder than them uh, and drown them out, then maybe we'll win the argument. Uh -huh. um, I, I just don't see I, I, I just don't see things in those zero-sum terms. Uh, and that's not to say that I'm uh, naive enough to think that uh, conversation is possible with all people on all issues. Because uh, it's not, of course. There's, there's not a conversation to be had with Richard Spencer. Mm -hmm. There's not. Um, but uh, there are conversations to be had with many, many people. Uh, and my uh, my beliefs about art, um, the art that I support and the art that I want to see in many ways are greatly informed by uh, the work that uh, I have done and the work that I continue to do as a political canvasser. Mm -hmm. uh, my first job out of uh, undergraduate school was as a political canvasser. And uh, it was my job to knock on everybody's door in my turf. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea who was going to be on the other side of that door. Uh, many of those conversations, most of those conversations were pleasant. Um, some of them were indifferent. A few of them were hostile. Um, but, you, you know, you just, you put your feet, I'm of the mentality, you put your feet to the pavement uh, and you knock on people's doors mm -hmm. and you invite them to have a conversation, to have a dialogue. And I think you're right when you say that too much of this conversation is uh, traveling in only one direction. Mm -hmm. So I think about, you know, what is it going to take to sort of have a 
two-directional conversation or to turn this monologue into a dialogue. Uh, and I think in many ways, uh, and it's actually the first piece I ever wrote for HowlRound, was called uh, How Going Local Can Revitalize American Theater. Um, and what I would like to see is I'd like to see our theaters be more multi-purpose spaces. Mm. I'd like to see them do things besides produce theater. I'd like to see them host dinners once a month. Mm. I'd like to see them be uh, venues for political candidates mm -hmm. forums. Uh, I'd like to see them host blood drives. I'd like to see them become donation centers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if theater's only purpose is to make art, uh, and that's kind of all artists are doing, you know, the conversation is going to remain pretty um, uh, it, it, one directional. Right. Uh, whereas if theaters start to see them as multi, start to see themselves as multi-purpose organizations engaged in the active process of building a healthy civil society, I think you would start to see the conversations become uh, more dialogical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this conversation, and <laughs> I feel like we could talk about this all day, but we have to wrap up. So. We're going to put a pin in this and sure. come back to this because this is such a rich, I mean, I can just feel myself getting really excited about how this might look in a practical sense and the, the barriers to it and the opportunities there, but we can't talk about it now. No. So <laughs> we'll have, we have a couple more years so we can talk about this. Yeah. Marshall. Thank you for being here today. My pleasure. And I will put lots of links in the show notes to the uh, pieces that Marshall has written and some of the other conversation topics that we engaged in today. But I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. And uh, special thanks also to Shadowbox Studio in Durham, North Carolina, where we are recording today. Check out their website, shadowboxstudio.org. For information about today's episode and more, go to artistsoapbox.org, and we're out. <laughs> <laughs>